Stephen Schwartz, welcome to the new school. Thank you very much. Welcome, Michael. We're sitting uh, in a little town called Langley up on Whidbey Island, north of Seattle, where you live with a remarkable community of others, uh, other interesting people. And you are the author and founder of a quite extraordinary website and um, communications and research center called the Schwartz Report, uh, www.schwartzreport.net. How do you describe the Schwartz Report to people? What is the Schwartz Report? Uh, the Schwartz Report is a daily web publication that is in support of the interconnected and interdependent nature of all life. It supports democracy, things which are life-affirming, and warns people of trends which are moving against those goals. Hmm. You've just come back from Paris. You were lecturing at the Sorbonne, I believe. Mm -hmm. What were you talking about at the Sorbonne? Well, it was a kind of public interview uh, about my research uh, in consciousness. I'm very interested in uh, and have been doing experimental work for many years, four decades now, in the, into the nature of consciousness, and I'm particularly interested in that aspect of consciousness, which is not limited by space-time. It's um, uh, my interests look at, for instance, the relationship between moments of creative genius, spiritual epiphany, and what people would call psychic events and near-death experiences. You've uh, written a number of books on this subject, uh, uh, the, uh, um, the Alexandria... Project, is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. And um, two other books. Um, Secret Vaults of Time. Secret Vaults of Mind Time. Rover, and uh, uh, most recently, Opening to Opening the Infinite. Opening to the Infinite. So um, this goes back to the um, remote viewing uh, research that, uh, uh, that was done at Stanford. Uh, no, I actually... Uh -huh. um, People have been remote viewing for thousands of years. For sure they have. The oldest remote viewing that we know of, uh, because it's recorded, in the uh, 46th chapter of Herodotus, so it's about the 5th century BCE, mm -hmm. <clears throat> is um, it's an almost perfect remote viewing that was done by King Croesus, the king of the Lydians, um, in which he sought counsel from the seven oracles of the ancient world, he wanted to know which one to believe in, and so he sent out seven embassies to go to the, each of the oracles. And um, the only one whose answer we know, because it was recorded, because it was right, was the one from the oracle at Delphi, which were young women, pythonesses, who were trained to uh, in meditation skills and then were hung from a kind of tripod, you know, like a cat's cradle, uh, over a, a cleft in the earth from which hydrocarbons bubbled up, which produced altered states of consciousness. And, and the embassy was told to go, to wait until the hundredth day, um, and then they were to go in and say, 
what is Croesus doing? And in the, in, as recorded in Herodotus, when they walked into the chamber where the Pythonus was, even before they asked their question, she said, I can count the sands of time, the hundred days. And I see the great ocean, the travel that they had done. And it strikes my senses that I see a large bronze pot over a fire with a bronze lid and a, um, a ram and a tortoise being cut up and thrown into that. And, in, and so they wrote all this down as they were instructed to do by, by the king, having didn't make any sense to him. And when they got back, they um, told him what the Pythonus had said, and he bowed down and gave obeisance because he had decided on the hundredth day what was the most unkingly thing he could do. You know, if they said, well, he's sitting on his throne giving edicts, well, that's what you expect kings to do. So he had a big bronze urn brought into the courtyard of his palace and big fire built underneath it and had a big bronze lid and he personally cut up a ram and a tortoise and threw them into the boiling water. So that's the oldest remote viewing we have. Uh, but there are hundreds and hundreds of examples that are recorded. In the late 60s, I got interested in this because I, um, I awoke when I was not quite 24, about 23 and a half. And it led to my going down and through a bizarre set of circumstances to the Edgar Casey Foundation in Virginia. I grew up in Virginia, in Tidewater, Virginia. <clears throat> and I went down there and began to read and eventually read all of them from start to finish, all of the Edgar Casey readings and Rudolf Steiner, Blavatsky, Ernest Holmes, Charles Fillmore, all the transcendentalists. It was like a five-year self-created program in Judeo-Christian mysticism, I guess. In any case, or anyway, Gnostic knowledge. And in the course of doing that, I kept running across over and over again Casey describing things that, for the people for whom he was giving readings in which they, he would say things like, oh, they have new pajamas. Or, oh, I can smell the flowers through the open window. And, and of course, this was all done by postal correspondence in those days. It was the early part of the 20th century. And he would write this all out. It would all be transcribed. He'd send it out. And then he'd get these letters back and say, yes, at the time that we were giving it, they, we'd, he'd just put on his new pajamas and or we'd just open the window and we could smell the jasmine. And he clearly knew veridical information that he ought not be able to know by reason of space or time. It was people were thousands of miles away often, and he was giving descriptions of things prior to them happening. And I got interested in this because what struck me about it was that all his senses reported. He could provide taste, smell, sound information, in addition to the the medical guidance that which was usually what people were asking for and there were extraordinary examples i mean in one case he he told somebody to to go to a pharmacy told the doctor of a patient to go to the pharmacy and get the oil of smoke so 
Stephen, we were just interrupted by the sound of a, a lawnmower uh, when you were talking about uh, Edgar Cayce's prescient capacities to know what was going on uh, in, as you said, veridical information that he had no way of knowing uh, through his capacity to go into a trance and do that. But I'm going to do something I've never done before. Um, when I went out to ask the guys mowing the lawn to um, stop mowing the lawn, um, this is Monday, April 15th of 2013, he said to me, did you hear about the Boston Marathon? And I said no, and it turns out that uh, that the, there was uh, there were at least two explosions, shattered the marathon, leaving two people dead and injuring oh as many God. as twenty three. Uh, so uh, you know it's chaos there, you know, um, and so on and so forth. But the reason I bring this in is that this is the kind of thing that you follow in your reports. So on the one hand, what's really quite unusual about you is that you have this strong interest in the nature of consciousness and remote viewing and psi phenomena and so forth. And at the same time, you do very tough-minded reporting on trends that matter in people's lives and in you know, historical context. You do a lot of work on our shared interest in the environment and chemicals and things like that. Um, so here we are. Uh, there's just been a bombing at the Boston Marathon. What goes through your mind? What goes through my mind is the trend. It's one of these major tropes that's going on in American culture right now is the... Um, the drive that we have created amongst unstable people by publicizing them enormously that encourages these unstable people to sort of want to go out in a blaze of glory by shooting lots of children in like Newtown or walking up to Gabby Giffords in Arizona, all of that. These are people who, who, who lack the social skills to be able to resolve whatever is causing their anger. And, and because of the um, ease with which one gets arms or gets directions to build bombs, um, acting out in that way is um, very satisfying, I think, because they get all the national media, and for a little while they are the story. And I think this is a, a really a symptom. It's like a fever that is going on in our culture because we refuse to make decisions and to create policies which are compassionately life-affirming. That's what interests me. I'm, I follow trends. I've been doing it for years. I, the government paid me to do it years ago, and and I did a radio program for a while. But I did Schwartz, I started Schwartz Report um, as a just my contribution to the good. And just when to, did you start it? Nineteen ninety-eight, I think. And how many subscribers do you have? It has a readership of about. It's in four forms. There's a tweet version, a Facebook version, 
and uh, a website version and a subscriber version. It's, um, as you said, www.schwartzreport.net. It has a total daily readership of about 20,000. Mm-hmm. And then in addition to that, I do much longer essays. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm the columnist for Explore Journal, the Journal of Science and Healing, mm-hmm. which is a peer-reviewed journal. It's the leading journal in the complementary alternative medicine consciousness area. Um, and you can go to www.explorejournal.com forward stroke content forward stroke Schwartz. You can download all my essays. But in the essay form and in the daily little notes that I write to stories, I'm I'm culling I'm 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 following trends that are shaping the world as it is becoming. So could you say is there a are there sort of like seven to twelve top trends that you consciously follow or are you weaving just dozens and dozens of trends? Well, the the thing is, Michael, I don't impose the trends. The okay. trends arise out of the data. I am a completely data-oriented person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm an experimentalist, mm-hmm. and um, I like facts. And but if it arises out of the data, can you nonetheless say, here are the main trends that yes. arisen out of the data? Yes. So what happens is I, I'm constantly culling hundreds of publications looking for recurrences or developments that that presage a, a whole line. I mean, for instance, just to give you an example of what I'm talking about, I started writing about climate change in 1991 after I read a paper in The American Scientist about ice coring, which pointed out that the, the ice cores showed that the atmosphere had been radically different um, in prehistoric times and um, and that the change seemed to be uh, uh, human-mediated. That was the first thing I ever read about climate change. And I read that human-mediated. I got that, heard that part. Change in CO2 levels. And so I began looking around and lo and behold, over the next months, more and more research papers, because I read research papers. Principally, I start with primary peer-reviewed sources, and then, because often they're too technical for most of the people that read me, I look for popular but factually valid uh, general reports that an intelligent general reader would be able to get. Um, you know, people don't want to get mired into p-values and z-scores and things like that. So, so then I look for these general publications, and I publish those and write a commentary of my take on what that story is about. So I began, that's an example, climate change, and I've done hundreds of these stories. And one of the things, for instance, as you watch these trends emerge, is that uh, the one constant has been the collapse of the timeline. Very notable. Meaning what? Well, when I've, in that original 1991 paper and then several sub- subsequent papers, um, 
they were talking about changes coming in 500 years. I see. So that and then they became 200 years, and then it became 100 years. Now it's down to 50 years. Right. So as the models that the uh, geophysicists and other people studying climate, um, as their models became more and more sophisticated, they went from being simply speculative perspectives to uh, predictive. And we now know that these models are highly accurate. They have proven uh, over the course of 20 years that they actually are predictive. And, and what the main thing that has happened is not that the changes that were originally uh, proposed have, have altered so much, but that the time in which these things are going to happen has altered the melting of the of the uh, Arctic uh, ice sheet and Greenland has proceeded much faster than anybody understood because when it began we didn't fully understand how the melting processes of glaciers took place. Uh, everybody thought it was sort of at the top, but it turns out that an awful lot of it's going on at the bottom. In any case, you look at trends like that. Another trend would be, uh, which which I'm very concerned about, is uh, the Homo superior trend. <clears throat> as soon as I began looking at the genetic engineering, as soon as those papers began to appear in the uh, life science journals, I began to think, well, it is in the nature of people to fiddle with things and try to make them better, even though the understanding of better may not be very uh, complete or sophisticated. And so it concerned me that at, as soon as it was possible, people would start genetically manipulating human beings. I mean, the obvious thing would be to get rid of uh, uh, MS or uh, Parkinson's or CP or heart disease or diabetes by manipulating the genetic material of, uh, of, 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 the, of the child um, so that they wouldn't get those. And in fact, there's a little girl, for instance, in England right now who's about, I guess she must be about six years old, who's never going to get breast cancer in spite of the fact that she has a long family history of breast cancer because she was an in vitro fertilization and they manipulated uh, genetic material so that she won't ever get breast cancer. And the Chinese have now, we, we've gone from that to the Chinese have now made an explicit scientific commitment to try to develop what I call homo superior. And because the changes that are wrought uh, are gene line, that is they pass on to subsequent generations, what I see happening is that those people and those countries who are affluent enough to do it will very quickly create what amounts to another human species, homo superior, and that the impoverished uh, world, which won't have access to that, um, will be sort of the normals, and that over time, the normals will become a new surf class. Now, this isn't going to happen tomorrow or even the next 50 years, but... If you sit down and work out how many people you actually have to change in order to, and, and it gets passed on to actually affect the, um, the species as a whole, 
it's an amazingly small number because you have two people and they have two kids and those two kids have two kids. You know, you just work it up and pretty soon you're up in the millions. So we already have another one of the trends I look at is the, the disparity of wealth. The dis we created the middle class in the American uh, post-war, World War II period. You, using government programs like the GI Bill and the housing bill in order to allow that middle class to arise. And out of it came hundreds and hundreds of thousands of doctors and physicists and engineers who transformed the world. We are now undercutting those people because there is a major geopolitical trend that is going on, almost unremarked, which is... Uh, which is of enormous historic proportions. To give you a sense of what I mean, um, the uh, philosopher Carl uh, Jaspers uh, coined the term axial period to describe an era, a time period from the 2nd to 8th centuries BCE. And in that period of time, almost all of the major philosophical and religious uh, movements that have shaped history over the last 2,000 years arose. And it was as if not just that little things changed, like technology or something like that, but that literally the consciousness of, the, of humanity changed. Right. I mean, all of these monotheistic religions arose in this period. Lao Tzu, Confucius, Buddha, Zoroaster, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Deutero-Isaac, Judaism, uh, Thales, all of, you know, it, in, in this, what is historically this tiny little period, and most of it is centered around the 6th century, there was a change. Humanity's consciousness changed in a, the most possible profound way. Another example of it is at the, at the end of the 19th century, uh, the rise of the nation state in its modern form. Germany consolidates, Italy consolidates, Australia becomes a separate nation. There are all of these little palatinates and duchies and districts and whatever consolidated into the modern European states. And, and since that time, in the last 150 years, almost every social assessment is predicated on the nation state. You know, we're Americans. We have the 37th worst healthcare system in the world. The French have the best. Uh, the Finnish are the happiest people. I mean, you could just, but it's so all let framed me, in. Let me, let me step stands. in here for a moment. Sure. So, what you've done beautifully is to describe um, five examples of the kinds of trends you follow climate change, the development of the genetically engineered Homo superius, uh, disparities of wealth. Uh, the axial age as a shift of consciousness, and the rise of the nation-state. Those are... Yes, but the big one, the important one that's going on and is affecting all of our lives in, in vast numbers of ways, almost invisibly, that's the point, is the rise of the virtual corporate state. Mm -hmm. I mean, the big geopolitical change that is occurring is that power is, just as it did in the 19th century, is consolidating into fewer and fewer mega transnational corporations mm -hmm. who control basically the daily staples of life, energy, information, healthcare, pharmaceuticals, 
it's happening almost unremarked, and but the implications of what flows out of it are enormous. I mean, you can look at GMOs, that's an example, but you can also just look at the whole food system. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the world food system is basically going to be controlled by about six corporations mm-hmm. um, who will control not only the seeds, but the the processing, the marketing. I mean, it's a it's a whole vertical integration, and and these companies who are not even known to most people um, literally will control what you eat, what medicines you take, mm-hmm. what kind of health treatment you get, what kind of power your automobile has. It's astonishing that that. Um, that this shift is a shift in the consciousness of the world, or humanity anyway. Um, and so those are kinds of things that I'm, I'm watching emerge and that I write about and track. So there are several directions I'd like to take this. Let me just throw out two or three key pieces. One is, uh, 20 years ago, when I started looking at the impact of the environment on human health and ecological health. Um, The sort of mantra at that time was that the four core drivers of this new age of extinctions that we're living in were climate change, ozone depletion, toxic chemicals, and habitat destruction. You well know that Bill Joy wrote a remarkable uh, article for Wired magazine called The Future Does Not Need Us, in which he talked about the movement from the age of weapons of mass destruction to the age of technologies of mass destruction and that those included biotech, nanotech, and robotics. And that the key point was that the weapons of mass destruction required a huge uh, industrial base to create them, whereas the technologies could be cooked up in somebody's garage and put on the internet. Um, And um, when uh, Jim McNeil, uh, 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 one of the lead authors of the Brundtland Commission report, um, came out to Commonweal once, he gave me a heuristic way of thinking about the future that has always stayed with me. He talked about four heuristic futures, business as usual, descent into chaos, achieving sustainability, and becoming artificial people on an artificial planet. And my point of view is that it's not going to be one of those. It's going to be a combination of all four. To some degree, business as usual. To some yes. degree, descent into chaos. To some degree, becoming sustainable. And to some degree, becoming artificial people on an artificial planet. And what I think interests both of us, and this is what I'm trying to get at, is that we can both see this extraordinary interweaving of all these different trends that you've outlined. And you could have picked another 15 or 20. Right, mm-hmm. And so all of these things are taking place. And one of the challenges is that they are undermining the biological fabric of all life, including human life and the human brain. Yep. And it's happening, as you say, the timeline is collapsing so that it isn't just toxic chemicals anymore. I mean... You know, synthetic chemi- synthetic biology, again, is a huge new... It's like the homo superior thing. Right. And so when you think about the meta-trend of the collapsing timelines, the deterioration of the biological substrate of all life, and all these different trends going on, where, if anywhere, does 
the potential for human intervention to better the situation occur. Because in a way, the concept uh, that Churchman had of, of wicked problems, where everything is connected to everything, and it becomes almost impossible to know where you can intervene because the situation is so complex. So given all these trends, given the fact that they constitute wicked problems, in what way can policymakers or concerned citizens actually engage in ways that are helpful? And a final aspect of this, given your interest in remote viewing and the nature of consciousness, do those tools of consciousness that you've been exploring provide visionary capacities that might guide us through some of these infinitely complex decision processes? All good questions, yeah. Well, let me start with the last one and work back to the first one. Um, in 1978, um, I had just left government. I'd been the special assistant to the chief of naval operations and then had uh, done some work for the secretary of the Navy and for the White House. And, and I had been spending a great deal of time looking at geopolitical issues. And so I was, as many people were in the 1970s, really deeply concerned that we were going to destroy ourselves in a nuclear exchange. This was when movies like The Day After uh, were made. And, you know, I mean, it was alarming. The Cold War in the, uh, in the uh, missiles of October, we had, with the Kennedy administration, we had gotten perilously close. And in the 70s, it was looking very hairy whether mutually assured destruction, which was the geopolitical strategy of the time, the idea to make everything so horrible that nobody would ever pull the trigger, was beginning to break down. So I was uh, concerned. I had a little girl. She was then about eight years old, my daughter Catherine. And, and I thought, well, what kind of world is she going to be in? So I began getting people to remote view uh, the year 2050, they would do it on the same day that they were uh, doing the remote viewing session. So, for instance, today is the 15th of March, and I would say to them, okay, go forward in time to the 15th of March 2050 and describe what you see. And I had a series of, it, it was a structured experiment, so or is a structured experiment. So I had a sequence of questions that I asked and ask them to fill out, uh, give me answers to. And um, very quickly, um, as I did this, I, I've done about 4,000 people of sessions with about 4,000 all over the world. Um, Japanese scientists and businessmen, Russian scientists and just general population, Jamaicans, uh, 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 Brits, French uh, people, uh, Americans, Canadians, uh, so what Italians. Did you discover? Anyway, so I did this in lots of places with lots of different groups, lots of demographic. Mm -hmm. And I was astonished because what I thought was going to come out of this was the sort of thing you see in movies. 
you know, great non-biological, all-machine, that sort of world. And in fact, that isn't at all what I got. What did you get? Well, it started out, um, one of the questions, one of the first things that these people kept saying was that the Soviet Union would disappear. That was 1978. Nobody thought the Soviet Union was going to disappear. And I couldn't figure out, you know, what, what does that mean? And Martians are going to come down and take it away, you know, the, lift the soil up like a cartoon? I just couldn't figure out what they were talking about. And so I, I, I but I recorded it all. And so I had the record. And, and but it kept coming up over and over. The, the world has changed. The Soviet Union has disappeared. Didn't mean anything to me. They described a world in which there was not... Oh, we were very concerned, I need to say. I was on the MIT Secretary of Defense discussion group on innovation, technology, and the future. And so I had been going to these meetings, and and we had talked about the future with some of the leading futurists of the day. And they were all... You know, their hair was on fire about the decline of overpopulation, the decline of... of uh, of resources, uh, I mean, they had a whole. There was a famous bet between Paul Ehrlich and I can't think what the other guys was for a thousand dollars on the price of commodities in the future. Anyway, so the, the popular view was we were going to have overpopulation and we were going to have um, a lack of resources. Mm-hmm. But the 2050 viewers, no matter whether I did it in Russia or in Japan or in Jamaica or whatever. When I asked them these questions, they said overpopulation is not a problem in 2050. Mm. And so then I said, um, well, have we had a nuclear war, which, of course, was what I was originally concerned about. And they said, oh, no, there are no nuclear wars. But there has been no nuclear war um, up to 2050. I thought, well, that's great. Well, then the world must be safer, I would say to them. And they would say, no, the world becomes much more dangerous. I said, why does the world become much more dangerous? They would say, because of terrorism and the effects that it has on the big industrial states. And I thought to myself at the time, this is 78, 80, 79, 80, 81, 82, 83. I thought to myself... How in the world could a handful of terrorists alter the whole structure of the United States? I mean, that just it seems very implausible. It's like having a gang of kids, right? Um, and yet they were very consistent about this. They described the world of 2050 um, as a world of small communities. There are, there are uh, some big cities that remain. But people have retreated in from the coast. All of this, of course, now we see exactly where it... But that anyway, at the time they were telling me all this, people retreat from the coast and they get out of the southwestern United States. And when I was doing it in other countries, I would get, you know, their a version of whatever their thing. But that um, there has been an energy revolution. This was... I still... I, I think I know what this is, but this is... As these people described this world of 2050, one of the big things that um, I understood was that um, you can only go so far out into the future. If you get further out 
if you get beyond a certain point, you can't understand what they're saying. I mean, how would you explain television to somebody in the 18th century? You know, you have a box that sits on a table, has little people dancing in it. So, I mean, it, what does that mean? And I, so I deliberately picked 2050 so that it wouldn't be too far into the future. I figured we could go, you know, 60 years, 70 years, something like that. But if I got much further than that, I wouldn't understand what they were talking about. So in any case, the, the one that I still haven't been able to quite figure out, but I think I know what it is, is they said to me, well, the, all of them, the, there is some kind of energy revolution that happens, and you don't use petroleum anymore. You, you get a box. You go down to the store and you get a box, and it's, it's uh, sometimes they're little boxes, sometimes depends on how much power you need. And I would say, well, you know, tell me about the box. And they would say, well, it's a, you know, it's a kind of a gadget and it gets warm, but not hot. And you get a little one to power your car and a bigger one to power your house and a bigger one to power an apartment building. And, mm. and, um, and I said, um, well, what runs it? And they said, oh, well, when you get it started, it just runs. Of course, this sounds an awful lot like LENR, low energy nuclear reaction. And that was one of the things. Another thing they, they said to me was, um, as a result of climate change, which I didn't even know about then, as a result of climate change, people don't travel as much. They travel uh, electronically. I said, what does that mean? And they said, well, you have this helmet that you put on. Or sometimes they would say, well, it's like a, it's like a, a, a kind of chair or box that you seat yourself in that's sort of encompassing. And all of your senses report. You, and, and, but it's as if you are located not where your body is, but in this electrical space you have this this other part of this other self that you create electronically and people go and have meetings there and um, of course now we virtual virtual reality I mean that's, if you were going to describe it in 1978 what would you say about virtual reality you that's put, a remarkably accurate description yeah I mean that, that, so their descriptions are non-technical so this um this capacity, which you clearly believe is veridical. What, remote viewing? Yeah. Oh, Lord, there, it's, there are literally millions of remote viewing sessions. There are, if you just look at the published papers alone, just in the peer-reviewed journals, uh, meta-analyses have been done. That's an analysis of whole groups of studies. And remote viewing is one of the six protocols that have stabilized now that have one in a billion odds, where one in 20 would be significant. What are the other five? Uh, the other five are Gonsfeld, which is a kind of first cousin of remote viewing. It's where you go into a lab and you they create an environment of sensory deprivation and you try to describe movies that are playing at some distant site. Um, RNG, uh, random number generators, uh, research consciousness affecting physical materiality, and another and a subset of that is uh, a second protocol within that is the Global Consciousness Project 
that Roger Nelson at Princeton, or was at Princeton, he's retired now, runs, um, in which he has random number generators scattered all over the earth, and uh, they are by definition random, except when big events occur that catalyze the attention of of large blocks of humanity, Princess Diana's death, for instance, mm-hmm. then these non-random generators go non-random. I mean, they 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 stop. They begin to develop patterns. Uh, yeah, I've read I've read that. So, why this is an almost impossible question, but why do you think it is, given from your point of view, how extremely well established remote viewing is, that it's still greeted in. 99% of the scientific community with incredulity. Because it posits that there is an aspect of consciousness not limited by space-time. Mm-hmm. And if you are committed to consciousness being only physiological, simply the result of brain processes, um, and that dead meat, no consciousness, physicalism, I mean, if you are committed to that, then remote viewing is... Um, uh, inherently impossible, and yet, uh, I mean, people who object to it are usually expressing enormous ignorance, mm-hmm. because when anybody looks at the, you just look at the data. I mean, again, I, I'm a data person. These are rigorously double-blind, randomized, or triple-blind experiments. I mean, a typical remote viewing experiment is. Let me let me jump in there again right. for a moment because. Um, like Marilyn Schlitz, probably a colleague of both of ours at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, um, has um, been one of the practitioners mm-hmm. of, of that field. But do you know Jan Volacek? He is with, um, he's a scientist and researcher uh, with um, um, the Fetzer Institute. Very interesting man. Oh, yes. I, I know the name. I think I may even have met him, but I don't, Very interesting I don't know man. him. I don't want to characterize his views uh, excessively because he hasn't published them. But he um, he is much more... He's, he's very sympathetic to these ideas, but he's much more skeptical about how rigorously they've been demonstrated. Oh, well, then he's ignorant. I'm sorry. Yeah, he's not ignorant. Well, he's ignorant of that research. I mean, here's a typical remote Mm. viewing experiment. Mm. Michael, I'm going to show you a picture. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd like you to describe it for Mm me. Or I'm going to give you an object. That Mm -hmm. would be another one. Um, Put out your hand. I'll put the object in your hand. Mm -hmm. But um, let's stick with a location. Either one will do to make the point. I'm going to show you a picture. It's a location of somewhere on planet Earth, and I'd like you to describe it for me. Mm-hmm. And so you give me a description as if you were standing there. Uh, I, I see water. Uh, the trees are coming into bloom. I can hear somebody cutting, uh, uh, cutting the lawn. Uh, I, I say, well, make me a little drawing of the, any structures that you see and, and then draw the structure. And they say, oh, well, this is a little red house and it's got dark trim and there's a big brass knocker on the door and they draw a picture of the knocker. No, no, me, no, no, let me finish. Yeah. Now, all of this is described and taken down. 
-hmm. At the time that it's happening, Mm -hmm. there is no target. Mm -hmm. The target gets selected after I have collected the data. Yes. I have a computer that has thousands of pictures in it, and it selects five pictures that are what we call orthogonal. That is, they're very distinct from one another. And uh, we, gi- we give your session data and we give the five pictures to a judge and we ask the judge, please look at this data and, and rank order the pictures. Is it most like this one, most like this one, most like this one, right? And one of them is a picture of your house. Mm-hmm. And the others are pictures of steamboats or the Eiffel Tower or, you know, things that are very, very different. We know that if you do this, that you will routinely get a significant, uh, significantly accurate um, assessment by the judge, or it can be done by computer scoring with what are called descriptors, where they check off each box, and either way you do it, you get, you can work out a statistical probability that you could just choose that by chance. And this, and a single experiment, of course, is you could get lucky in some way, but you do thousands of these things. You have to explain to me how it is that people can routinely. It's not a huge effect, but it is a very consistent effect. How people routinely describe things, which at the time they are describing them, don't exist, only exist in the future. Right. And what I would say to you is that I know a body of researchers who are deeply sympathetic to this work and have followed it and who have honest concerns about... um, whether it is as certain as you are clear that it is, and I honor that, and I sit listening to both of these, listening to your certainty and listening to their uncertainty, and let's just stipulate for the purposes of this conversation that you're right and they're wrong, but I want to simply say that the people that I talked to about this because I've followed this field for some time. Uh, There remains, even among those who would love this to be clearly true, um, a level of um, uncertainty about it. And from your point of view, that means they either aren't familiar with the literature or have some bias. Well, the question you need to ask them is... Where, what are the flaws in this protocol? I mean, I've debated this dozens of times okay. with, with people who claim they understand the literature. Yeah, I hear you. And I say to them, I, I, I'll give you a very typical example. Mm-hmm. I was debating with Ed May, uh, mm-hmm. who ran the SRI program, mm-hmm. the government program, and we were debating Dan Dennett and Jerry Levy mm-hmm. uh, in front of the, uh, this was back in the 80s, in front of the news directors of all the ABC stations. This mm-hmm. was a, a debate that ABC mm-hmm. uh, National put together. And we were going along, and I, that's what I kept hearing. Oh, yes, well, we have these mm-hmm. doubts. And so finally I said to Dennett, mm-hmm. um, 
Well, uh, since you claim that you are completely familiar with this material, mm -hmm. let's pick an experiment that we both can agree on, that we both are familiar with, and I want you to tell me specifically mm -hmm. what's wrong with the protocol. Mm -hmm. There was this long pause, and then suddenly he ejaculated, well, I haven't actually read this stuff. It's just conceptually impossible. Right. Well, I, I happen to be not only sympathetic with what you are describing as a certainty, but hopeful that it is true. So I don't say this as a skeptic. <laughs> I understand. I say it as someone who, um, like you, very much like you, I try to be factually driven. And so I want to stipulate, I want to move on from this because I want to stipulate that your perspective is the one that I'd like to proceed with and simply note that even among people who are not professional skeptics but rather sympathetic, mm -hmm. there is a set of scientists who have concerns. I, as I say, I have been listening to people yeah. tell me what's wrong with it and that it's not really as rigorous as, and yet when I press them, I and I encourage them. you, since you're doing these interviews, yeah. I encourage you to press them to describe mm -hmm. what is wrong with the protocol. Because right. what you will discover when you really press mm -hmm. and don't let obfuscations, don't accept that, mm -hmm. you will find out that they don't have any specific criticism right. that they just, in, and I understand this, they simply inherently, they are so, it's a form of paradigm boundedness. It's very carefully described by Thomas Kuhn of the Center for Advanced Studies, yeah, in his classic book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which I encourage anybody who's interested in consciousness research to read. Mm -hmm. He describes very clearly what paradigm boundedness mm -hmm. is and how it plays itself out and what happens. And we're in that transition. We're in, uh, my argument to you would be, there are now six protocols that uh, that are standardized across many laboratories uh, that have done thousands and thousands of experiments that are uh, explicitly and overtly parapsychological in nature. Remote viewing, Gonsfeld, staring, uh, RNGs, global consciousness. In addition, uh, you have to look at the growing corpus of work on near-death experiences. And I just I have just recently come out of a long debate on this subject, in which the debate is usually, um, oh, it's a form of hallucination. It's uh, ketamine-like substances released in the dying brain, hallucinating, and when they wake, when they wake them, resuscitate them. You know, they have these uh, just at the right before they're resuscitated and the brain comes back online. There are these hallucinogenic experiences. The problem is that's completely inconsistent with the actual data. Um, if you look at the near-death literature, several things immediately occur. It began as a collection of anecdotes. People like George Ritchie, who, a psychiatrist in Charlottesville, Virginia, who had an experience 40 years ago 
you go, you, you, you see Ray Moody's life after life that he wrote after collecting these experiences. So it started out just as a collection of anecdotal experiences. Then uh, researchers like Pim Van Lommel, a Dutch cardiologist, um, and Bruce Grayson at the University of Virginia, began doing prospective studies. That is, they got interested in NDEs which took place in hospitals while people were being carefully monitored so that the collection of the data arose in a a context of very tight controls. It wasn't that somebody was recounting, you know, two years ago I had a near-death experience and this is what happened. These are people that they would catch right as they came in and, and when they had been monitoring their brains and their hearts and all that, and who would describe the thing. The, so it became more and more rigorous, culminating in a paper published in The Lancet by Pim Van Lommel of prospective studies. But then when they went through the data reported by the near-death experiencers, they discovered that in a, in a percentage of them, there, were, uh, there was objectively veridical data that could be time-stamped. Uh, for instance, they, so, so that they knew that during the time period where the, bla- the brain was non-functional, as neuroscience understands it, nonetheless, people would be able to have experiences that, that they could time-date to that period when they were, they were flatlined, um, in which they would describe things that even if they were awake, they shouldn't be able to know. For instance, a young girl saying, when I, while the people were working on me describing the doctors, I went out into the hallway and there was a young doctor with a blue striped shirt who was flirting with one of the nurses, or another man who, while he was out, they moved his false teeth, and he described where they moved him to, that sort of thing. So it's very tightly controlled, objectively, vertical data when these people are flatlined, as it were, the brain is non-functional. People like Sam Parnia in the, in the United States and, and Japanese race researchers are now extending the time uh, between the, the cardiac arrest event or whatever happens, and the resuscitation. They now have it up to five hours. It's amazing. A Japanese paper was just published. I can't think of the name of the researchers. Just a few, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And um, in which they have people that they are bringing back after hours. that they, and, and so... The, the, what, what's evolving in this area of research, resuscitation, there's a journal called Resuscitation now, is that they are getting tighter and tighter control of brain function. That is, what is actually happening while these people are in these uh, states. And because doctors are more and more aware of, the, of these things, um, it's estimated that 4.2% of the American public has had a near-death experience. That's over 13 million people. It's a lot of people. That as these events occur, they're getting much, much more careful about the record-keeping and the context in which it occurs, these prospective issues. 
And because there are more and more of them, because resuscitation technology is getting better and better, people are reporting more and more of these things, and they're all basically telling us a very similar kind of story. Now, uh, Eben Alexander recently had wrote a book that's been a bestseller for many months now about going to heaven, as it were. I, I would differ from he's that. He's a neurosurgeon. He's a neuroscientist, yes. He's a neurosurgeon mm -hmm. who had a very lengthy, right. uh, went into a coma. And, right. um, you would differ. I would differ in that I find it very revealing. You, again, you were talking about trends. I find it very revealing that Christians have Christian symbology in their NDEs. Buddhists have Buddhist symbology. Muslims have Muslim symbology. So are they going to different heavens, quote unquote? I don't think so. I think what they're doing is moving into the non-local domain, this domain of consciousness, um, and that they are attuned, if you will, to certain information structures which are culturally specific. And so all of the argument, which there is a strong correlation between atheism and uh, NDE denierism. Um, the people that really are publicly vocal about against NDEs are, also tend to be public atheists. And they get hung up on the imagery, which I think is... Um, a complete misunderstanding do of what's you, going uh, on. Do you subscribe at all, or do you have a, a view of Rupert Sheldrake's explanation of how this works? Uh, the I, the yes. morphic resonance view? Uh, because that would be one explanatory system for describing, right. in effect, how you go into non-local consciousness, consciousness, but then there are morphic resonances that are created by collective thought, which... Yes. Then enable Christians, Muslims, and Jews to experience it differently. Yes, I um, I don't want to I don't want to mischaracterize Rupert's stuff, which is very interesting. It had a big when I read it in the early seventies mm -hmm. had a big effect on my thinking. Um, he cites it in biology. He's a biologist. Mm -hmm. I. I actually don't cite it in biology. I think part of it has a biology. Mm -hmm. the, the, the problem is that, the challenge, I guess, mm -hmm. is part of the mind consciousness is clearly local. Mm -hmm. That is, it's cited in your physiology. Mm -hmm. But another part of it clearly is not, because as I was saying about these veridical experiences, mm -hmm. when, the, when the brain is not functioning mm -hmm. and you can timestamp when something's occurring, what is experiencing it? Mm -hmm. That's the challenge, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. Rupert's idea that individual acts of intentioned observation produce what he calls morphogenetic fields. I would call them information architectures, but mm -hmm. we're on the same page. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how archetypes get created, for instance. We know, for instance, from remote viewing that it is easier to see a cathedral than it is a warehouse. Why? Because a cathedral is the focus of thousands and thousands of acts of intentioned observation, particularly in a highly emotional state, that, that's an important part, whereas a warehouse is just a big building you walk by. And so because, it ha because the cathedral has been the focus of intentioned observation, awareness, it becomes informationally enriched. 
and is therefore easier for a remote viewer to describe. We know that a remote viewing target that has entropic process in it, like a nuclear reactor, is much easier to describe than, than uh, um, um, a dam. Um, why? Because there is a transition of informational state. So in the sense that, that inform, transitions of informational state... Um, and it can be either nuclear or prayer. Oh, yes, it doesn't make any sense. So that, nuclear or prayer shows up in the remote viewing uh, with the same... Uh, well, it, both intention to awareness expressed through prayer and entropic process, that transition of energy state, mm-hmm. uh, which is a transition of informational state, mm-hmm. both of them show up because... There are changes in information. They're energetically state. rich at an informational level. Yeah, I wouldn't say energetically. Okay, I would say they are informationally rich. Max Planck, in an interview that he gave in 1931 in the Observer, the British newspaper, said, um, "I've spent my whole life looking at at materiality and atoms, mm-hmm. and I believe that consciousness is causal and matter." is its manifestation. And so I would say, rather like Amit Goswami, I am interested in downward causation, not upward causation. That is, we tend to look at it as space-time is the locus of attention, and anything else must be bizarre and outside. I would say that consciousness is fundamental, and that materiality is its manifestation. So you are, as I am, in some sense, resonant with the Platonic, Neoplatonic traditions of consciousness being primary. Yes. I actually, uh, um, my research is in two realms. There is scientific, experimental, very Mm -hmm. tightly controlled, but I have enormous respect for ethno-historical material. I mean, if you look, for instance, just to give you a, not a consciousness example, but a very clear example of this, if you look at uh, acupuncture, for instance, you can see that acupuncture developed empirically over millennia of time, probably, Otzi, the Iceman, found in the Italo-Austrian Alps, has tattoo marks showing acupressure points right, I know that. thousands of years before the Yellow Emperor's uh, a compendium of, of acupuncture. So it developed because empirically people observed it over and over, and they did so at a time when they were not distracted with the overwhelming stimulus that that we live in. They lived in a different world. So let me, and this is so fascinating to me, uh, you, you made an association, which I deeply resonate with, between the protocols, the five or six protocols, well-established uh, 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 related to psi phenomena and near-death experiences. Uh, can't we extend that to uh, the research literature, uh, particularly the guy from the University of Virginia who looked at reincarnation 
studies. Ian Stevenson, now, Ian Stevenson. now Jim Tucker's carrying right. on. Uh, and also, in a related way, what about well-documented out-of-body uh, experiences? Uh, so are they, uh, let me put it as a question, if you associate the psi research, the psi research with the near-death experiences, which I do also independently, but I go on to wonder whether the same phenomenon of non-local consciousness is reflected in the Ian Stevenson's uh, uh, reincarnation studies or out-of-body experiences. Yes, I think you're absolutely correct. What I was going to say, um, and you've now basically said it, is that when you consider the idea of non-local consciousness, you're looking at something that is taking place in many different disciplines. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's intriguing about it, Michael, is that each of these disciplines has their own literature on the subject mm -hmm. with almost no reference to the others. That is, physicians refer to papers that were written by physicians. They don't refer to papers written by, say, biologists mm -hmm. or physicists. Physicists refer to other physicists. Mm -hmm. So these are independent literatures. But if you read broadly across many, many disciplines, what you see emerging is a new paradigm. And, and it involves all of these things you've cited. We have to say, what is the evidence for non-local consciousness? That's the question. The answer is, I think, there are six protocols that have been thoroughly established, as we were discussing. There is this for this objectively verifiable time-stamped near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. There is the reincarnation work of of Ian Stevenson and and Jim Tucker and up and up at the University of Iceland, Erlander Harrelson, which is also telling us that consciousness survives. Then you have sort of, in addition to that, you have sort of traditional stuff like channeling and mediumship. But that is very difficult for me because I don't know how you distinguish somebody channeling something from somebody remote viewing something. So I don't quite see. That's an example of where I don't think there is sufficient methodological rigor to be able to distinguish what you're looking at, whether you're looking at a survival phenomena or whether you're looking at a remote viewing phenomena. But, but putting that to the side, the, the reincarnation work that Ian began and that Jim has continued, for instance, is looking at not just objectively verifiable stories that children tell, but they're also looking at um, the uh, birthmarks and wound heals uh, keloid tissue from wounds that people bring in from one life to the other and have a story, a narrative that goes along that can be objectively verified. So I would say that all of those, that is, again, the six protocols, near death, the reincarnation work, plus in the out-of-body stuff, plus I would add uh, meditation literature, all of these things, and oh, and, and plus I would also say to, to all of that, I would include uh, moments of genius because people who have these these experiences... When, when you have a dream of the double helix and that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, Kolka's dream of the benzene ring. Right. Uh, Jonas Salk uh, told me that the solution to the polio virus came to him in a dream. 
Teller uh, when he saw the stoplight change in London. Yeah, so there's for the nuclear. Yeah, you see over and over again first tier people. That is mm-hmm. the people, many of whom we know by one name, but anyway, who who change human history. They find this all <laughs> yes, okay, and because they personally have had these experiences, and indeed the thing which for which they are historically known is based on those kinds of experiences. You said uh, something very interesting that I'd like to follow up on. You said that we know this is how archetypes are created, and that interests me because for the last year I've been really deeply engaged in the study of archetypal psychology as a field. And... Um, and so, you know, looking at, uh, at Jung's work, at James Hillman's work, uh, and uh, Thomas More and others. And um, so the nature of archetypes is a fascinating question. Mm-hmm. So would you expand a little bit on, just from what you've been saying, on how you believe let's let's stipulate that in the in the in the dictionary it describes an archetype as a universal symbol or pattern of behavior or something like that mm-hmm. and so um and they obviously translate in in many different mythic and religious traditions but also literature and so on mm-hmm. so could you expand on how you understand the nature of archetypes and how, out of non-local consciousness, you understand archetypes are formed? Well, um, if you look at Jung, for instance, he has a very important statement that doesn't get picked up very much, but which to him was very important and to me is very important. And he says, noumena are psychic entia outside of space-time. What he's really saying is these informations, this non-local information structure, these are things that aren't in space-time. And they get created by individual acts of intentioned observation. That's why the Sheldrake work was so important. And it's been confirmed by multiple experiments of people doing things to test his hypothesis. Give me an example of an experiment you think of as testing that hypothesis. Well, uh, one of the first ones, the one that won a prize, uh, was an experiment that was done by uh, Gary Schwartz and uh, another one done by Alan Pickering. In the Schwartz experiment, he took 48 Hebraic words and uh, he ranked them from old words, old sacred words, God, mm-hmm. to modern Uh, mundane words, table. Then he created another 48 words that were were fake words, T-A-C instead of C-A-T, you know, cat. Um, And he got non-Hebraic speaking students, and he tested to make sure that they didn't uh, know Hebrew because he wrote these words in, in Hebraic, ideograms, and he got, he asked the students to look at the words, and the ostensible task they had was to translate them, but 
he didn't really think they could do that, and in fact, they could not. But his second task, which was what he really wanted to know, was that they should rank their confidence in the words, in what they had done about the words. And what he discovered was older sacred words got the highest confidence. They'd been reiterated the most under highly emotional circumstances of prayer. The modern mundane words got the second greatest confidence. And the fake words got the lowest confidence. That's lovely. I remember that experiment. And what was the other one you mentioned? Uh, Well, the two others I want to mention, because they're essentially variants of the same theme, just Mm -hmm. to make this point. The other one was Alan Pickering's one, and that would use Farsi. It's basically the same experiment. And most recently, Chris Rose in England, Alan was, I think, at Bristol University in England, Most recently, Chris Rose has done the same thing using Chinese ideograms and non-Chinese speakers. And they find, all of them find the same thing. Those words which are the focus of the greatest emotional intention and that are used the most, God, sacred word, you know, things like that, are the strongest responders, mundane but real words next, fake words least, because nobody's ever paid any attention. They're made-up words. So what that tells us, I think, what we can infer from that, is that individual acts of intention and observation create an informational richness. So in order to think in terms of archetypes, Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces, for instance, how do Polynesians, who never had any contact, anybody ever recorded, with, uh, say, Portuguese or uh, uh, Swedes, how do they share these same common archetypal images, the hero, the virgin, the, you know, the ingenue, the, mm-hmm. the, the wizard, that sort of thing? And the answer is that each of these cultures develops a perception of this, the, you know, the elder who is wise, the innocent virgin. I mean, they're, they're naturally occurring imageries that come out of every culture. doesn't matter whether it's uh, uh, very primitive or fairly high-functioning. Those same images, we relate to them, and, and they create these information structures so that these same imagistic images... Um, that's a tautology image. Anyway, these same images um, resonate with people all over the world. Now, let me take it down a level. We know from the remote viewing research that this question of numinosity, which is what we're really talking about, what Jung was talking about, he was fascinated with the idea of numinosity and uh, and its role in the collective, and he talks a lot about it. And that wonderful book, In Search of the Numinous. Yes, exactly. So mm-hmm. we know from the uh, from the remote viewing research. I've already mentioned the cathedral and the warehouse, mm-hmm. but we know, for instance, that um, if you were doing a remote viewing and One of the targets was an Irish lyre, you know, a kind of harp. And the viewer was uh, an Irish person who felt 
strongly identified with their Irish heritage, that even though it wasn't the target, they would do what we call displacement to the targets. Remember the five targets I told you about? Well, so there are three kinds of answers you can give. You can be right, you can be wrong, or you can displace. And the question is, even though the target was actually um, a, a bassoon, why did the person describe the liar correctly? And the answer is they, this displacement is caused because they have a strong emotional resonance with that symbol, whereas if the viewer were, say, an Italian, it wouldn't happen. And along those lines, Dean Radin's work, which we both know at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and his studies on, um, on uh, you know, uh, it's not remote viewing, but on thought transfer, uh, he has the highest success with people basically who love each other a lot. In other words, there's... Yeah. Uh, and so that's that... In that instance, it's not the resonance of the remote viewer with the object or interpretation of the object. It's two people creating a field between them. A linkage. A linkage in which uh, transfer is much more... is much is facilitated. I would not say... I don't think anything gets transferred. Okay. Again, this is hard to talk about because the non-local is oh, yeah. non-space time. Yeah. I would say to you that the the affection mm -hmm. that two people have creates a linkage in the non-local to which they both open. Like you turn on your computer and it goes on to the net and your friend is a PC and you're a Macintosh, but nonetheless you can link up. You're connected by your intention. Uh, we know, to take Dean, you mentioned Dean, he's done a wonderful series of presentment experiments. That, And what he's doing is he's getting people to look at a television monitor, and most of the time it's just noise, just white noise, but periodically a picture appears. Now, as you're staring at the monitor, um, a camera is staring at the iris of your eye, and what he discovers is shortly before the actual picture occurs, your eye, okay. your iris changes slightly in anticipation of the stimulus that it has not yet received and that you don't know is coming, but that somehow your body knows. It's a presentment, a physiological response. And secondarily, he has discovered, and this has been validated in many other experiments, that if, if the picture is one that evokes a strong emotional response, is highly numinous, uh, it's sexual or it's violent, that the reaction that you have prior to receiving the stimulus will be bigger. And the same studies that I'm aware of are the ones that... Uh studied a heart response, heart acceleration response, just before the randomly selected right. image, violent or peaceful or loving, exactly. was generated. And the point, again, was that even before the random generator chose the image, the heart accelerated. Right. So the consciousness, as you say, is not only non-local, but takes place outside of space-time. That's a yeah, key. Yeah, we know it's not electromagnetic. Right. The reason we know this is that first, a researcher in Russia named Leonid Vasilyev mm -hmm. carried out a whole series of experiments shielding people from electromagnetic radiation, put them down into mines and caves and put them in Faraday cages, and very methodical. 
And he discovered that no measure of shielding had any effect. And he got it down to just one tiny little bit of the EM spectrum that he couldn't get at, what's called ELF, extreme low frequency, 3 to 300 hertz. And the only way you could do that would be to put somebody in a submarine and surround them with seawater because that shields out ELF when you get to a certain depth and you're hanging over more water underneath you. And in 1977, I got a submarine and um, I did that experiment. Really? Yeah, called Project Deep Quest. You can actually go up on YouTube. It's up mm-hmm. there. People put it or go to my website. Mm-hmm. StephanAschwartz.com, and you can actually see the video. So StephanAschwartz.com is different from the Schwartz Report. Yes. StephanAschwartz.com is my personal website. Okay. Schwartz Report is my daily publication, and Explore is my monthly publication. Anyway, so we did it. We knew exactly how deep we had to get. The Navy had established that at great cost. And we put people down. I had people get in the submarine, go down, and try to remote view where people were hidden. And they did just as well as they would have done if they were on the so surface. it's not on the EMF spectrum. not in EMF. It's so not what EMF. do we know about it if it's not EMF? We don't, well, we don't know a lot. We, there are some researchers who believe that this, this is a quantum mechanical process. I, I I'm not so certain of that. I'm not uncertain of it. I just don't know. So I'm always very meticulous. I talk about linkage because linkage, that's observed phenomena. Clearly, as you describe with the two people who care about each other, or you look at Gene Ochterberg's, for instance, healing research. Uh, Gene did a study where a healer would send healing to someone and the, the person who was the recipient would be, have they're being monitored with brain uh, monitors. And when they are the, the subject of the actual attention of the recipient, of the healer, their brain state changes. And when they aren't, it reverts back. So she would, her experiment was at, at uh, randomly designated periods, someone would focus intention and then they would stop and then they would focus according to the, how the random number generator played it out. And on those times when they were the focus, then the brain state changed. And William Browd did, uh, began another set of experiments called the staring experiments, where you're sitting in a room and a TV camera is pointing at you, and across town or across the country, doesn't matter. That's one of the things about this. Distance doesn't make any difference. Someone's staring at a monitor, a television monitor, and periodically... Uh, your picture appears from wherever it is you are. The rest of the time, it's just uh, uh, white noise. And, it, and then when you, the picture comes up, you stare at the person, and the person who's being stared at, um, their brain changes. And Rupert Sheldrow wrote a book called yeah, The Sense Rupert, of Being Stared well, At. Well, that's one of, there's a whole string of these experiments. But you know what I like about Rupert's work? He also did this wonderful book called... Uh, uh, Dogs who know when their masters are coming home and other yeah. other reports. So he did it human non human, which was he, he's not the only one. There are yeah. there are uh, studies of people uh, affecting uh, mice who've been anesthetized. Mm-hmm. For instance, I like this one because mice don't get hurt. Mm-hmm. 
There are studies of people affecting uh, blood cells and test tubes. Uh, interestingly enough, in these therapeutic intention studies, that's what they're called, um, we know that, that people can produce positive effects. That is, they can uh, bring about healing mm -hmm. or they can produce negative effects. And again, we were talking about ethnohistory. I pay a lot of attention to ethnohistoric stuff. Mm -hmm. I've, you know, if something survives thousands of years, there must be some... Some voodoo, voodoo stuff. Exactly. And so suddenly you see where the idea of the evil eye sort of thing comes from. Carol Nash, for instance, did studies in which he took... Um, uh, he would grow cell colonies in Petri dishes... And then he would arbitrarily assign one as the treated and one as the control. And then he would break the treateds down into positive treatment, negative treatment. So what do you think happens to non-local consciousness? Is that your preferred description of it? Yes. What do you think happens to non-local consciousness at a global collective level when a few dozen corporations control the airwaves and advertising at a massive level. Uh, that, that, this is where my interest in consciousness overlaps my interest in trends, because that's exactly... Once you begin to think, once you get your head around the idea that not all consciousness is physiological, mm -hmm. I mean, as long as you believe that consciousness can only be a function of physiology... Mm -hmm. None of this makes any sense. Mm -hmm. um, but when you actually look at the research data and without any bias, just look at the data, mm -hmm. what you see is that all consciousness is interconnected and interdependent. And so then you ask yourself, well, okay, all of these studies we've been talking about of individuals reacting when they're, when they're being stared at or when they're the focus of therapeutic intention, how does that play out at the social level? Because if it happens to one individual, then it's happening to lots of individuals. And therefore, it's a collective phenomena. And, and, um, and then you have to step back also and say, another area of research we have to touch on is the uh, research of the effects of variations in, in the... Uh, the biosphere, for instance, uh, fluctuations in geomagnetic field, or in another case, local sidereal time, where we know that if you do a remote viewing experiment, for instance, or, or a therapeutic intention experiment or anything else, um, at certain times, it's much more likely to be successful than at other times. Is that, uh, is that a diurnal rhythm, or is it a uh, and, or, you know, monthly, or is it a specific... Well, it, it, geomagnetic field is tied to solar activity. Right. Because the, the sun emits particles which impact the, the magnetosphere. The magnetosphere right. goes into flux. The geomagnetic field changes, and that has an effect roughly like putting a magnet next to an old cathode ray tube. I mean, it, it, it causes disruption. But there is another effect called the local sidereal time effect, uh, which was discovered by James Spottiswood, which shows that that particular times are better to do experiments. Times of the day. Times of the day. And so... Would that be morning and evening? No, it's uh, 30 minutes either side of 1350 local sidereal time. Really? 
Um, and you have to find out what your local sidereal time is because it's not the same as clock What does time. sidereal time mean? Well, the Earth is going around the sun, okay. and, and, right? And, and if there's a slight variation, three minutes and 56 seconds. Uh, mm. Three minutes and 56 seconds. So your, the, the, your local time and your sidereal time are out of sync, but you can get it off the Internet. You can just do a Google and locate it. But the point I'm trying to make is we know that uh, these changes, these fluctuations in the, in the geomagnetic field in the biosphere have a big effect on people's ability to open to the non-local. And a researcher named Suthbert Ertel has carried these studies even further, and he's looked at these changes that occur in the geomagnetic field, what he calls cosmological influences, and the social effects demonstrating that the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, for instance, occurred at times of um, relative quiet in the geomagnetic field, and therefore people were better able to open to creativity. Because as I said to you earlier, one of the things that I have been looking at for the last 25 years, particularly, is the relationship between moments of genius moments of spiritual epiphany and, um, uh, and events like remote viewing. And what you see is that these are the same experiences modulated by context and intention, uh, by which I mean that a physicist who has an experience, an Einstein, a Pauli, a Jung, a, a Planck, um, all of whom report these, by the way, um, they're physicists. They're trying to look at fundamentals of how the world works. That's the kind of experience they have. You know, Einstein says the special and general theories of relativity came to him. Um, you know, sort of all of a piece in a way. Um, Brahms says, I'm in an altered state of consciousness, and when I'm in this state of consciousness, I can hear the music. I just write it down. Beethoven, Mozart, Copland, same thing. These first-tier people who we think of as the great creative geniuses uh, all report this same experience. I'm in this altered state of consciousness. It's a timeless time, a spaceless space. And when I'm there, I feel attached to everything and I have all these insights. If you look at people we think of as great mystics and saints, you see precisely the same thing. If you look at people who do uh, have near-death experiences, you see the same thing. If you look at people who get really good at things like remote viewing, you hear the same thing. And that, by the way, leads to another point, and that is that the ability to have these experiences is a function of your capacity to hold intentioned awareness. And that's why we have discovered that meditators uniformly, whatever the task is, do better than non-meditators. And the reason is that meditation teaches you uh, how to hold intentioned awareness. This is fascinating. Well, let me ask this. Uh, is there a place, or a, let me put this, is there a... Um, is there a community of thought that 
where the worldview that you're describing has come together other than in your own work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not the only person. I, I may have a particular take on this. No, you're clearly not the only person. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, like for, for me, for example, in the world of, I know the world of uh, integrative cancer therapies. So if you were to ask me, I could say to you, you know, um, at this particular time, there are several conferences or places oh, I see what you're where the community of people that I regard as the best in this area yes. gather. So I can imagine that, for example, the International Association for the Study of Near-Death Experiences would be a place where probably mm -hmm. there are conferences on near-death experiences. You'd get a lot of the top people. I don't know that. But what about the collective implications of non-local consciousness played out in these different areas. Is anybody synthesizing those in ways resonant with the way that you're synthesizing them so that there's a, a body of thought that goes beyond your personal work? Sure. Well, there are three big discussion groups on the Internet. Um, of scientists from many disciplines who are interested in these issues. We certainly don't agree about everything. In fact, some of us don't agree about anything. But What, what um, are they? What are they? One's called PDL. They're invitational only. You PDL. One's called Survival Net. Charlie Tart runs that. You know Charlie. Yeah. Um, PDL's run by James Spottiswood. There's a new one that's just come up that Leslie Combs has put together. So I would say to you that there is an emerging corpus of thought in this area. <coughs> Excuse me. That there is an emerging corpus of thought in this area, which is beginning to coalesce around this emerging paradigm. You've got, then you've got other communities like the quantum biology group, which is, uh, you know, these are guys who are not interested in consciousness per se, but the nature of their research has forced them to confront the idea of, of, the, of consciousness as a quantum phenomenon. And, and for instance, they're publishing papers that are showing things like um, every cell in your body goes forward in time, considers its options, picks the best future of the ones available to it, collapses the vector, and then lives into it. Isn't that incredible? And so they're describing... What you just described is so beautiful. Yeah, it's, I mean, and this is not the brain, which is really very simplistic, but literally every cell of your body. And then you have to look at things like uh, um, uh, Rolfing, where uh, Ida Rolf believed that um, and I got Rolf by Ida Rolf, and I believe she was correct. By restructuring the tissue, it yes, changes consciousness. Yes, by, by the fascia, muscle fascia, that, that it stores patterns of memory. Mm -hmm. and, and if you look at, again, now we need to go, if you look at the reincarnational research that, that, that Ian and Jim Tucker, uh, Ian Stevenson and Jim Tucker reported, you and, and this in terms of uh, the book, for instance, Ian wrote called Biology and Reincarnation, or maybe it's Reincarnation and Biology, 
where he talks about this physical manifestation of remembrance patterns that come across, memories, basically. That, and that seems to be what does come across. I mean, my takeaway for reincarnation is we're never coming back, but that this eternal part of ourselves will manifest other personalities, which will be in part constructed by the memory patterns, the, in many cases, the reactive patterns that, uh, that come over um, and that you can see reflected in the birthmarks and the wound marks that are literally in people's bodies, but that, um, that Ida Rolf believed carried over um, as memories in the fascia of the... And there are now, a, now there's another group of researchers who are beginning to propose the idea that within DNA, these memory patterns come across as well. So, again, in order to really get this, you have to look across many disciplines. The quantum biology work didn't even exist 15 years ago. And now, you know, there's a paper every month or more, and they're all pushing this. It isn't that they want to go there. It's that that's where their research is, is taking them. And so I think what we're going to see in the next 15 years, and I think by 20 years this will have resolved itself, this paradigm will have shifted, is that materialism, while very helpful in certain sort of gross phenomena, like the difference between macrophysics and quantum physics, um, we need a new emergent addition needs to be incorporated, and that is the idea of consciousness as independent of, of physiology and space-time and, and being informational in structure. Let me ask you a question that you may have thought about, but I don't know that you've thought about it. In the town where I live, Bolinas in Northern California, there's a young man, the son of a friend of mine, a young man named James Fox, who, as a very young man, got interested in UFOs, started carrying a camera around, ended up the leading filmmaker traveling around the world, talking to pilots, security people, and all kinds of people about UFOs, held a brought a bunch of these top people from around the world together at the press club in Washington, D.C., had the governor of Arizona moderating the meeting, Hmm. and created this film, actually several films, but um, where he just shows the footage Mm -hmm. of the pilots saying, this is what we saw, and the radar screen showing it, and... Mm -hmm. The you know France declassifying its material and saying most obvious explanation is that they exist and the English getting there and the U.S. beginning to back off its position that they didn't exist, which was actually you know originally for a long time they admitted they existed and then the CIA decided mm-hmm. the Russians might misuse it, so they created this firewall to deny it for a long time. But one of the things that fascinates me is you have this. Microsoft founder who set up these SETI search networks of radar to find life elsewhere in the universe. But nobody seems to take the UFO literature, and I watched the film as an agnostic on it, 
And I have to say, it looks awfully real to me. Mm -hmm. And if that's real, why do people ignore the UFO stuff and focus on these radar arrays looking for signals? I mean, I don't mind that they're doing that. That's interesting work. But if you take the UFO, this is like non-local consciousness. Mm -hmm. If you take the UFO literature seriously, which I have begun to do, I mean, I studied alternative cancer therapies at a point where people said it was pure quackery. I was going to destroy my career. But like you, I'm curious about stuff that's at the boundaries of knowledge, and we're both willing to look at it objectively and take the hits that come with that. <laughs> and so uh, so the UFOs uh, belong in that category for me. I mean, even to talk about it makes me sound like some kind of weird flake. But nonetheless, you know, I look at the data, and I think, this looks pretty real to me. Right. And then when I think about what the implications of that are, it is we are not alone. Yes. We are not alone in the universe. And not only that, but when these UFOs come down, one of the things, the repeated messages, is to be very, uh, to be very aware of the dangers of nuclear war. Yeah. You know? Well, I follow, I follow UFOs sort of... Avocationally, I guess. Mm-hmm. That Tell is, me what you. It isn't. It isn't an area that it, you can do much research in, and I'm an experimentalist, mm-hmm. so right. you know it's. But it has always struck me <laughs> as the height of hubris to believe that we, on this one little planet, and the one little solar system tucked off in one little corner of one galaxy. <laughs> you know, I have a. I have a screen saver. On you want my to say computer. that we are the we are not the only ones. Yeah, I have a I have a screen saver on my computer, that's one of the deep deep space images from Hubble. And when you look at it, at first it looks like a bunch of stars, and then you realize each one of these is a is a galaxy. It does strike me as the height of hubris to believe that we're the only ones. And then you have the panspermia hypothesis, namely, which is there's more and more data on, which is that meteors are carrying around the building blocks of life, and then they land on a fertile planet, no right. less, and so life gets seeded yeah. from a universal, yeah. a universal life-carrying mechanism throughout the universe. Yeah, well, I, you know... My take on UFOs is they're behaving pretty much like anthropologists behave. They come observe us. That's right. You go to the edge of the village and you are as unobtrusive as you can be. And and then you try to cultivate occasional talks with locals to try Mm -hmm. to figure out what's going on. In this case, you monitor their electronics. Mm -hmm. But there's a deeper issue, which I find actually quite fascinating. Years ago, before he died... um, I knew Arthur Kessler. Yeah. And I had dinner with him one night, and and he told me something. He then put it in. A, it was before he wrote a book called Janus. It, it, this is the same story. It's in Janus now. But he said to me, hasn't it ever struck you as rather odd, Stephen, that all of a sudden we went from this kind of early primate to this much higher order? And... And I said, yes, it always it does. He said, about 35,000 or so years ago, there's this big shift. And I said, well, yes, uh, that is a little odd. I mean, evolution is moving along, but then there are these kind of jumps. 
And he said, well, have you ever considered that somebody would come down and they would manipulate genetically, this was way before genetics, they would manipulate the stuff of life in some way and, and it would cause a change in the nature of the neurology of the, of the species that they were manipulating. And according to your theory, it could be done by intention. Well, it doesn't it, necessarily have to be a surgical manipulation, according could be, to you. Or it could be a surgical, but just mm-hmm. to finish the yeah. thought out, I had a researcher that worked for me when I ran the Mobius lab, a woman named Ann Druffel. What is the Mobius lab? Just so. Well, for 20 years I ran a research laboratory that did non-local okay. consciousness research down in Los Angeles. And and I was, at various times, I was the senior fellow at Philosophical Research, and I ran the Mobius Lab, and then I was the director of research at the Rhine Research Center in North Carolina. And anyway, mm-hmm. now I am the senior Samueli Fellow for Brain, Mind, and Healing at the Samueli Institute, and a be-all fellow. And anyway, uh, so Anne got me interested in the abduction research, and through her I met John Mack, who was at Yale, who got killed in a drive-by. And um, you think that was intentional? No, no, yeah. it wasn't. No, he just no. stepped off a curb. Yeah, and John just looked the wrong way. Just so that we expand that for a minute, John Mack was the. Harvard psychiatrist yes, Harvard, who yet. did an extraordinary piece of anthropological observational research on people who reported UFO abduction right. experiences. And one of the things he reported, he said, I don't know what this is, but I know these are consistent uh, through many interviews. And one of the things he demonstrated was that some of the people that had these experiences never left the rooms that they were in when the theoretical abductions took place. Right. So that it wasn't necessarily a physical experience. Right. It was a psychological experience that had shared themata uh, around yeah. the world. Not unlike near-death experiences. Exactly. Um, but in any case, John, uh, or and in addition, John said to me, you know, I'm very struck by the fact that so many of these people report that they're manipulated in some way that that you know and it has to do usually with their sexual organs mm-hmm. um, and that put me back in mind of this business like the homo superior thing you know how if you wanted to if if you looked at the human race as an anthropologist there you are you're mm-hmm. coming from a much more advanced civilization and you saw that they were kind of running amok mm-hmm. uh and you wanted to help them, what would you do? Well, you'd come down, you'd select a relatively limited number of fertile people, you would manipulate them slightly to correct something. I mean, Arthur Kessler's point was, I think that he said, I think they made a mistake. They didn't link the high brain, the midbrain, and the brain stem correctly so that the high brain was captured by uh, everything that it got was mediated by the midbrain and the reptilian brain, or as Paul McLean at NIH put it, when a psychiatrist sees a patient, he's he's simultaneously diagnosing a crocodile, a horse, and a human. And um, but anyway, I mean, Arthur said, 
you know, if, if there was one thing I could change, I would tell them, I wish you guys would come back and fix this so that it wasn't so hard to get access to high-order functioning, which you really have to do in meditation. And, and uh, so I thought to myself as I listened to that, I was sitting at dinner in Santa Monica with John, listening to him talk about this, and I thought, you know, uh, that sounds just like Arthur. 20 years ago, you'd come down, you'd manipulate a certain number of fertile couples or fertile people. They would have children. You would set this in motion, and those children would have children because it was gene line, so it would make a permanent change. And you really wouldn't have to get that many people. And we're talking like thousands. That's all. And you could alter the whole species over a period of time without intruding in a way that would force them to go in a certain direction. It would simply dispose them to go in a certain direction. And so, I mean, in terms of UFOs, two things. One is, as I mentioned, I think it's enormous and really almost insufferable hubris to believe we're alone. Two, it is very clear to us, and probably much clearer to other, would be much clearer to other more advanced species, that those choices which are compassionately life-affirming ultimately play out to be the best choices. They're the most efficient, they're the cheapest, and they're the most life-affirming. When, when you talked about how uh, intentional awareness, focused intentional awareness, um, uh, creates when it's held by many people around a cathedral, for example, or a belief system, uh, a numinous energetic quality that uh, draws awareness, and this being an example of the archetype. And that surely is a very elegant description of how archetypes come to be. Uh, Ibn Arabi, the great Sufi mystic, differed from Carl Jung and James Hillman on archetypes and the imaginal realm in which they are held, because both Jung and Hillman had, at least to some degree, Jung, uh, Hillman had, sees it as a psychological projection. Ibn Arabi, and to some degree Jung, thought that perhaps there were what we now call or angels or numinous structures that were coming down to meet us in the imaginal realm just as our prayers went up to meet them. The question of who is right seems to me to uh, turn on the structure of non-local consciousness. Is non-local consciousness something generated by human intentionality, or is it in some sense human intentionality beseeching upward and forces coming down to meet it so that our dreams, our images, our genius is in fact in some way related to divine or at least numinous powers in the universe that are coming down to us in that way. Do you hold a view of which of those it is, or do you think it's different from either one? I don't see them as contradictory or ex mutually exclusive. I think, in fact, I say right all the time, all life is interconnected and interdependent, mm -hmm. and we are both informing and being informed by... Mm -hmm. is it, uh, 
these informational um, transactions. Mm -hmm. There's nothing coming down. There's nothing going up. There's nothing going anywhere because this is taking place outside of space-time. It's very hard to talk about because our language is embedded in space-time. But the evidence based on the research, again, I just, you know, it's, it's all about the data. The evidence is that we are both informed by and we are informing of um, these information structures. Our acts of intention awareness make them informationally enriched, and by the same token, we are strongly influenced by them um, when we, by the individual choices we make, we align ourselves, we make ourselves resonant with those information structures. So I don't see these two things. I, I think Hillman Young, um, I, I, I don't see those as, as contradictory. I think this is an interactive process and that, once again, consciousness is causal and matter is its manifestation. You know, if you look at, for instance, the placebo research, very instructive. It's a whole body of research of thousands of these studies, and everybody sort of dismisses the placebo. Oh, well, you know, what did the medicine do? The much more important, I believe, is what did the placebo do? Yes, yeah, 30% of the variants. 35 to 40% of people who receive the placebo do as well or better than the people who get the medication. Now, think about that for a second. If I wanted to do, for instance, a pancreas study, most people don't know where their pancreas is. It's in that little notch that you see in the esophageal shell that goes there. But in any, I mean, it goes around it. But in any case, the very few people know where their pancreas is, and they have absolutely no idea what it does. And yet we know and can predict that if you were participating in a placebo drug trial which involved the pancreas, that 35 to 40% of the people that got the placebo, the sugar pill, would do as well or better than the people that got the thing. Now, the question is, how do they know? This shows cellular control. How do they know where to go? How do they know to produce the outcomes that the drug is going to produce? Well, it, one might assume that there was some form of linkage going on between the physicians and the patients. And in fact, if you look at the research again, you find that the efficacy of placebo results, indeed the efficacy of studies, depends a great deal on what the physician's level of faith in that outcome is, that that when a drug is new and nobody knows quite what to know, they, people are very enthusiastic, you get great results. And as more and more studies come in, it becomes less and less clear, then the results go down. There is clearly uh, Herb Benson and uh, David McAuley, for instance, in, it's either in JAMA or New England, uh, published a study some years ago showing this relationship and that the relationship that the physician has with the patient, even though they don't know who's getting the placebo, who's getting the medicine, but they have a state of consciousness about what the drug trial is about, and that somehow the patients are able to link into this. It is a non-local linkage. Now, 
you know, they tried to explain it in terms of visual cueing or body language or tone of voice. But Carlos Osis and Doug Dean, for instance, did a study in which they they had people, uh, they filmed researchers conducting their studies and then they played it for students with the sound turned off. And they asked the students to rate the, the, the researcher for warmth, compassion, uh, communications, apparent communication skills. And they found that those people who, who conducted exactly the same experiment, those people who were cold, uh, appeared, their body language looked withdrawn, their results were not as good as the people that looked enthusiastic and, yeah, and uh, supportive. Stephen, as we, you've been very kind to give us uh, your time, and and I find your work really fascinating. As we move toward uh, completion, um, we've talked most because I think we're both so interested in in the nature of consciousness, um, and uh, uh, and. The truth is that a lot of what you do, as, as we've said, is to put out these reports on um, what's actually happening in the physical, social, political world. Um, so, for example, um, on the home page, there's this lovely little metric that's running all the time. Uh, it says Schwartz Report, again, www.schwartzreport.net, uh, trends that will affect your future is the little subhead. And then, just to describe it, there's a little poll. So, for example, this week's poll, I think we will be in a new war within the next 12 months. Yes, no, not sure. And then right under that is the cost of U.S. wars since 2001. And it's like one of those little population things where it's at... What is it? One billion four hundred and forty-three million. Oh, one trillion. One trillion four hundred and forty-three billion three hundred and twenty-two million, and just shooting all the time. Uh, and then you can go to the archives where um, you get uh, day by day uh, the items that you've sent out. So, for example, uh, on Monday, April first. Arkansas residents evacuate as Exxon Mobil tar sands pipeline ruptures. Why is socialism doing, doing so darn well in deep red North Dakota? Expression of emotion in books declined during the 20th century study finds. And earth cooling schemes need global sign off, researchers say. And so there's this. And then on the second, you picked up this wonderful article, which I love, by David Stockman on the great deformation and our economic doom. And, you know, so you're obviously scanning a huge amount of material, and each day selecting three or four mm -hmm. top headlines. And so in addition to your thinking on, on consciousness, there is this deep immersion in daily trend reporting. And I take it that you're doing the, um, the polls as a way of crowdsourcing wisdom and vision just the way you crowdsourced visions exactly. of 2050. Exactly. I'm looking at, I, I, I do between four and seven stories a day. 
I, I don't do less than four, but I don't do more than seven because yeah. it's too much. People, right. you know, yeah. it's too much. Um, I'm tracking these trends. The reason I, I think about it for a second, yeah. you know, if you fly over Europe and you look down, you don't see a line that says this is France and this is Germany, as an example. And yet no Frenchman 50, mile, 50 meters, 50 feet from the border thinks of himself as a German and no German 50 feet from the border thinks of himself as a Frenchman. Why is that? And the answer is because culture is created by thousands and thousands and millions, billions of tiny, tiny little mundane decisions. What will I wear? What lunch will I fix my kids? Uh, what movie will I watch? What sports do I watch? How do I worship? What, what uh, music do I listen to? Which side of the road do I drive on? All these thousands of these little tiny decisions we think are not very important. We're just ordinary people. What difference does it make whether we buy incandescent or LED bulbs? Well, the difference between France and Germany that, that is invisible at one level but completely visible at another is that it is the aggregate of all those millions and millions of little tiny mundane choices. I'm interested in the shifts in the gestalt that are going on. And you're right. I run my little the weekly poll because I'm trying to take the pulse of the people, and I'm fascinated. If you look at that, I think it says something like 60% of them believe there's going to be a war this year. That's right. And and um, and I've been doing this for years. You can go and see all yeah. of the polls, and you'll see how remarkably prescient they are. But but these 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 stories, which appear to be all disconnected. I mean, some people criticize my uh, criticize Schwartz Report because you know it's got David Stockman here and it's got archaeology there. And it, uh, what's the connection? Well, the connection is I love it. I do too. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> no, but, I really do because it's a willingness across all boundaries to say what you think. Oh yes, absolutely that surely, but but what's why I pick the stories I pick as opposed to other stories? Mm -hmm. I don't do news per se, epiphenomena news. I don't do polemics. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in political arguments. I don't care about that. What I'm interested in is data of the choices people are making to create the world we live in, and and that people are much more empowered than they believe they are. The choices, you know, 20% of the, of the electricity that's used in the world is used on light bulbs for lighting. Nin actually, it's 19.8% or 7%, but roughly 20% is used for light bulbs. So you think, well, it doesn't make any difference whether I buy incandescent bulbs or LEDs. But the fact is it makes an enormous difference if millions of people make that same choice, then you have a big trend that is occurring. And if you look at things, for instance, we're now looking at, look at the changes between where we were 10 years ago in terms of same-sex marriage equality and where we are today. That's a shift in consciousness. And it has occurred because thousands of people have thought about this issue, either in seriousness or superficially, but whatever, and they have made different choices. And 
and and the reality is our government is way behind where we as a people are and that's one of the problems we have to we have to work with but if you look at these stories that I do, even though they seem at a superficial level unconnected, in fact, they are always stories about choices. They're, I believe that individuals, individually and collectively, are enormously powerful to change the world. And and I've spent a lot of time, it's a, we haven't even got into that. But through a shift in consciousness. Through a shift in consciousness by making different choices. That you don't have to be rich, you don't have to be powerful in an exoteric sense. You know, Gandhi gave a wonderful insight on this. Just before he was assassinated, he did an interview uh, with a young reporter who said, my editors sent me up to ask only a single question. And he said, well, you asked the question. And the young man said, my editors want to know how you forced the British to leave India. You had no money. You had no official position. You had no army. You have no weapons. Uh, you're just a guy in a, a dhoti. How did you get, how did you force the British to leave India? And Gandhi's response was, it isn't what we did that mattered, although that mattered. It isn't what we said that mattered, although that mattered. It was the nature of our character that made the British choose to leave India. And in that, I think, is the answer to the the ills that we face, which are many in this culture, if we all make, if uh, let me frame it personally. About 30 years ago, I decided that when I was faced with choices, that my choice would be to pick that which was compassionately life-affirming. It might not be the right choice if you, in terms of how much money you could make or how well known you could become or anything else, but that I felt that in the confusion of life, if I chose the compassionate life affirming choice whenever I was given a choice, that I would be okay. I got that guidance in meditation and I have basically done that ever since. And I have never regretted it. And I think if we would each choose that which was compassionately life-affirming as we best understood it, it's not some perfect understanding, it's where you are at that moment. What in this moment is the most compassionate life-affirming thing I can do? And if you make that choice, and if you help other people make that choice, and we collectively make that choice, we can change the world. Stefan Schwartz, thank you for being with us at the New School.